0: Thank you and welcome to the Institute for Government, and thank you very much for joining us today to talk about the Institute's new report on accountability in modern government. You can tweet about it um, using the hashtag IFGaccountability. (coughs) Now, as usual, we'll start the event with our panel, um, have some discussion between us, and then we'll move on to questions from the audience. I'll try and get to questions a little bit earlier than normal today, just because Margaret's going to have to leave us a tiny bit early, and I'm sure you'll want to, uh, to ask her lots of things. Now, accountability is a topic that's received a lot of attention recently in the fallout from incidents like Windrush, the rail timetable disaster, Universal Credit, Um, and I suppose one of the key questions is um, when the increasingly complex landscape of modern government goes wrong, who is accountable? And perhaps just as importantly, what is accountability for? Is it for blame or is it for learning and improvement or indeed for both? So, we're going to start uh, with the lead author, um, Benoit Guerin, introducing the report and taking us through some of the recommendations. And then we're lucky to have a truly excellent panel joining us to uh, talk about their own views. We've got uh, Dame Margaret Hodge, who's been a Labour MP for Barking since 1994. Um, she was also Minister for State um, for Work. Uh, The Minister of State for Children and the Minister of State for Universities amongst other roles and perhaps most pertinently for the discussion today um, she chaired the Commons Public Accounts Committee for five years and in the process has gained all sorts of unique insights into the UK system of accountability. We've got Sir Richard Mottram, who's a visiting professor at the LSC and was, until recently, chair of AME. Um, he's had a very distinguished career in the civil service, holding permanent secretary positions in the MOD and DWP, amongst a range of other departments. Um, and so he brings a unique perspective on accountability in the civil service. And then last but definitely not least, we've got Jonathan Slater, the current permanent secretary at the Department for Education, He previously was in cabinet office, uh, the MOD, and the Department for the Ministry of Justice, where he led the transforming justice (coughs) programme. And before that, uh, Jonathan was a deputy chief executive Executive in a local authority. So he brings a perspective on local government and central government accountability. So we're going to look forward to hearing from our panel uh, very shortly. But first of all, Benoit, over to you to talk through the findings of the report. Thank you, Emma.
1: (laughs) <laughs> all right, good afternoon and thank you all very much for joining us today. This report is the product of about a year of work and consultation with a number of people to whom we're very grateful. This starts with our advisory group, which Margot and uh, Richard were a part of, but also all those who attended our workshops over the summer, who met with us and corresponded with us after we published our interim discussion paper in April 2018. So let me introduce the report by making three comments. The first is that we're here because we believe that accountability matters. It is at the heart of a healthy democracy because it helps to ensure that those who are in positions of power, especially in government, are held responsible for their actions by the people that they serve and represent. This can increase the legitimacy of the state, which is vital in an age of seemingly declining public trust in government. And also it should come as no surprise that many high-profile government failures bear the hallmarks of weak accountability. If you think of major projects that overrun through to the Windrush scandal or even the Grenfell fire. Now, we're not saying that accountability is some sort of magical solution that can solve all of government's problems, but what we are saying is that where accountability is weak, the risk of failure increases. And by failure, we mean financial mismanagement, public services that perhaps don't run, run as well as they could, or even that collapse in some instances. My second comment is that good accountability is perhaps unsurprisingly really hard to achieve. In particular, we argued in our interim report that there are three main issues in the UK system of accountability. First, there are fundamental gaps in accountability at the heart of Whitehall. The rules that define the relationship between ministers and officials have evolved to undermine accountability. They confine responsibilities to silos, which sort of denies the reality of modern government, but also they promote secrecy, which means that in many cases, roles and responsibilities are not always clear. So take universal credit, for instance. In the first review of the programme that it conducted, the National Audit Office noted that the department couldn't explain how it had arrived at October 2013 as the initial rollout date for the programme. And it also said that the department seemingly hadn't assessed whether this was even feasible. And then something really interesting happened. You had all of these contradictory accounts that came through the grapevine in the months uh, following, where the minister, the then minister, Ian Duncan Smith, was adamant that the civil service had pushed this timetable and the civil servants were arguing that it was the politicians who had driven these sort of quite quick... Timelines, We'll never really know what happened, but this is exactly the sort of secrecy that you don't want to see in a major project that affects a very large number of citizens around the country. So these are some of the weaknesses we found in Whitehall. The second weakness that we and others have pointed to is that successive governments have failed to ensure that accountability has kept pace with the increasing complexity of delivering public <coughs> services today. Because the accountability system as we know it, if you think for example of the role of the accounting officer, dates back to the late 19th, early 20th century when departments were much smaller. For instance, Margaret has observed that in 1918 the Home Office had only 28 civil servants, but today it has around 28,000. And in the last decades, thanks to new public management and all sorts of other changes, the way that government delivers public services to citizens has become much more fragmented. It involves these very complex networks of public bodies, private third sector providers, and so on and so forth. And the rail timetable chaos over the summer is a case in point. The interim report published by the Office of Rail and Roads a few weeks ago prosaically described a gap in industry responsibility and accountability for managing systemic risks. In short, nobody took charge of the system. And their report painted a picture of a complex system where mistakes were made by all those involved, uh, be it the train franchisees, network rail, the regulators, and the Department of Transport itself. Now, if you're a commuter, this is hardly likely to be satisfactory, but it does accurately reflect the reality of modern government. So, that's a glimpse of some of the issues we identified in wider public services. And the final weakness we pointed to had to do with the culture of accountability, which is too often focused on blame when it should focus on improvement. And this is partly due to the role of the opposition and the media in highlighting government failures. And that's not a bad thing in itself, although I must confess that as a French national, I was quite surprised by the rather vitriolic nature of headlines in the newspapers in this country when I first came here. And that can end up creating um, a very high-stakes environment which, again, focuses on blame, promotes defensiveness, and prevents learning. So what you would want ideally from a good system of accountability is to balance learning from incidents with accountability for their consequences, uh, which is not easy to do. But my final comment, however, is that these weaknesses can be addressed. There is no silver bullet, uh, but there have been many positive developments in recent years to strengthen accountability, which goes to show that surely this isn't beyond the wit of man. So for instance, you've got the Infrastructure and Projects Authority, which plays a very important role in reporting on government, government's major projects. There are new requirements on officials to clarify the arrangements for managing the public money that their departments um, deal with. And then the NAO and PAC have started looking at projects, government projects earlier on in their life cycle hopefully so that corrective action can be taken and issues don't arise. So there's many improvements that we wanted to build on and I won't take you through all seven of our recommendations I'm going to highlight three which go to the heart of some of the issues that we have found. So in Whitehall where we pointed to a lack of clarity and transparency we suggest ways to hold ministers to account for the feasibility of their projects. It's very important that ministers and officials have a safe private space to uh, deliberate on decisions to, on major projects, but that does mean that as an external observer it's not always very clear how the civil service has advised the minister on the risks and feasibility and mitigation strategies associated to their projects, and then whether the minister has taken this on board or gone ahead regardless. Add to that uh, the fact that ministers tend to move on long before the consequences of their projects materialise. And you've got a bit of a time inconsistency problem, perhaps best expressed by Danny Dyer's take on David Cameron and Brexit. Where is the geezer? He should be held to account. <laughs> and probation reform is a bit of a classic example of that. We and others uh, warned that the scale and pace of the reforms um, were very ambitious, and yet the minister went ahead with them. And by the time the problems emerged, the minister was, had, uh, had a new post in cabinet, Presumably, he was advised on the feasibility and risks of undertaking such reform so quickly, but he was never asked to justify publicly why he had followed this particular course of action. So, our recommendations if they were to be adopted, would ensure that these discussions happen, and to be fair, they often do, but also that there is more transparency around them once that projects have been agreed. So we're recommending that accounting officers uh, should build on existing mechanisms and publish more of this information on feasibility and risk of major projects, which could then provide the basis for future scrutiny of the projects by Parliament. We also recommend that Parliament should recall ministers, even when they have left office, to ask them questions about why they made certain decisions on major projects, particularly when these projects failed a few years later. We hope that our recommendations would help to provide more transparency on the basis for making decisions on major projects, uh, but also encouraging officials officials and ministers to carefully think through the risks and mitigations for major projects. So that's just one of our solutions for accountability in Whitehall. When it comes to wider public services, we propose to strengthen the scrutiny of the links between local public services. So people's interaction with their local schools, local hospitals, define much of their relation with the state at large. But often these services are not delivered in a joined up way that benefits the public. And decisions that are made in one service can affect another if you think of the interface between health and social care. So we recommend that governments should develop local capacity to track the links between these public services and how they affect performance. That would involve government reviewing the case for setting up local public accounts committees to serve as a forum to convene local leaders to have these sorts of conversations. That could initially be trialled in mayoral combined authorities because they already offer a focus on a specific geographical area and could be expanded to other areas later on. We think that this would help to preempt failure, but also to deliver more joined up services for the public. <coughs> and finally, the issue of the culture of accountability. Now, we recognize this is very unlikely to change overnight, but new cultures can emerge when you make changes to systems and to the incentives that people have within those systems. I think there's in fact very simple solutions to create a much simpler, much more positive culture of accountability. I recently learned, much to my delight, that in ancient Greece, officials who were deemed to have done a good job would either be voted a gold crown or free meals for life. So there you have it, some established best practices to draw on. On a more serious note, though, we noted in our work that accountability often focuses on blame because scrutiny tends to kick in after issues have escalated into full-blown crises that have caused harm to the public. So there's a lot of emotion in the press and in the wider public, understandably. So, for example, if you take the Windrush scandal, caseworkers and community groups had picked up that some people were the victim of the hostile environment policy long before the media and Parliament stepped in. So what we're recommending is further ways to get better information on issues earlier, to prevent crises from developing in the first place so that the stakes aren't so high, and also to support learning and to avoid blame. So we argue that government should bring together existing ombudsman services into a single unit and give them own motion power so that they can understa- undertake investigations sooner when they realise that a crisis is unfolding rather than having to wait for a referral. We think this would help to strengthen early warning systems so that leaders can hopefully take corrective action to prevent crises from arising in the first place. So that's it for me. To sum up, accountability matters, and yes, there are issues in the UK system, but they can be fixed. This is just a flavour of some of the recommendations we've made in our report, and we very much look forward to continue engaging with you on these issues in the months, and hopefully not years, but maybe years to come. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much, Benoit. Um, richard i 'm going to come to you first um, and ask for your initial responses to the report we published today. Thank
2: you <coughs> I think actually that accountability will be with us um, forever, so you can keep on reporting about it um, because I thought that Margaret Hodge was going to go first, I prepared a defense of our system of accountability <laughs> and on the grounds that I should never waste something i 've worked on, I just wanted to make a point uh, which is that uh, although quite rightly and, uh, I'll come back to this, but I mean, I have, a lot of, uh, I have great support for a lot that's in this report. We don't have to beat ourselves up too much about it. So there are aspects of our system which are actually widely admired internationally, and we should recognise that. And uh, I don't know whether li- you, you read the newspapers like I do, but I've discovered that just about every, well, not every, but a lot of countries in the world are suffering from acute crises of accountability and acute levels of corruption, for example. And we live in a society, thank goodness, uh, where these are not the characteristics that we face. So um, if you look at the um, Corruption Perceptions Index produced by Transparency International, (coughs) you'll discover we come eighth in the world, eighth equal. So let's put all this in a perspective where there are some things about the way we live our lives which are very good, point one. Point two, I think we need to think about the whole system, and again, I'll come back to this in a slightly different angle in a minute, but I think that if you are a citizen, then there are important aspects of the system that, for very good reasons, aren't touched on in this report, which are actually vital. One would be about the rule of law and the role of the courts and the judiciary. And we are extremely well blessed there, and we should be very, very cautious about any risks To that process. Secondly, I think that the media are um, rather sort of criticized in this report for reasons I quite understand. But actually, investigative journalism is a key defense in our country. And as Benoit said, uh, if you think about the Windrush scandal, this was both something that was being picked up by uh, individuals who were dealing with the case but would it really ever have reached the level it had reached if certain newspapers hadn't taken it on and made something of it? So I think that that, that this wider sort of system uh, is an important thing. If you think about some of the risks, therefore, we might face, some of these are pressures around the funding of some of these key things, including, actually, investigative journalism. Another interesting dimension, I think, which certainly concerns me, is... Accountability ultimately depends upon some shared understanding and confidence in evidence. How it's compiled, how it's interpreted, what confidence you can place on it. And that, I think, is an area where sort of post-truth, alternative facts, um, one of the more cerebral members of the government, I think, said people have had enough of experts. this This is an area where the civil service thing has an important role to play in ensuring that when government says things, they are actually evidence-based and even might be true. <laughs> now, I, um, <laughs> I wanted to commend the report and its recommendations. I, uh, I actually support the proposal around more openness, for instance, which Benoit touched on. There's also very interesting said proposals in the report, which I don't think he did touch on, around could we have more transparency about the basis on which decisions are taken in spending reviews and the underlying models that are used to uh, produce the result, and indeed transparency around those models. And if you think about, say, the results of the last spending reviews in relation to prisons uh, and the operating model that lay behind them, you could see the value of this. So I I absolutely commend uh, that um, dimension of the report. Benoit did touch upon the problem of ministerial churn in holding people to account. Uh, That's also a problem for officials. So because officials move around far too much... Uh, it's very difficult to catch up with them. I-, I can say this as a permanent secretary who always moved every three years. Um, so it's a serious, serious issue uh, for both ministers and officials. <laughs> now, I think the report is sort of partial in two other ways which are important. One is that it's largely about projects and delivery. I'm not in any way un- you know, suggesting these aren't important things. It says something about policy, but not a great deal. Now, government impacts upon um, the system in lots of ways other than projects. For example, um, legislation. Uh, I happen to be involved with the Better Government Initiative. We have tried over a period of years to persuade the government and actually to persuade Parliament to take standards of legislation more seriously, a, a fundamental issue of accountability, and we have got absolutely nowhere. So this report is valuable, but it's partial and also I think it's partially in a second way it is very technocratic it's written by technocrats it's for technocrats nearly everyone in the room is a technocrat uh, and there's nothing wrong with being a technocrat (laughs) Um, by golly there's nothing wrong with being a technocrat but nevertheless government isn't simply about technocracy it's about politics and uh, for example the report says parliament exists to hold government to account on behalf of the public well it does But that's only one part of what Parliament does. Uh, And other parts of what Parliament does might cut across uh, that. So uh, to give a a related example, I'm a strong supporter of transparency. (laughs) might seem implausible for a former official in the Ministry of Defence, but I am. And uh, I agree with almost everything in the report about transparency. Uh, But actually, implementing the report in relation to transparency will really be a very big ask because um, a lack of transparency and sort of being economical with the truth are not just uh, sort of political uh, uh, dimensions, they're also associated with the civil service on occasion. And I dug out a quote uh, from a former prime minister to illustrate the challenge um, that uh, we face, taken from the memoirs of somebody called Tony Blair, who modestly referred to his memoirs as a journey and in this in this in this in this very very good book actually in this book he at one point he gets really impassioned about something about the biggest mistake he made and we could all guess what that might be and the answer is freedom of information <laughs> freedom of information he says three freedom of information three harmless words there is really no description of stupidity that is adequate and then he goes on to add a few more words Once I appreciated the full enormity of the blunder, I used to say, more than a little unfairly to any civil servant who would listen, where was Sir Humphrey when I needed him? (laughs) That is the only occasion I can think of when Tony Blair ever said, where is Sir Humphrey when I needed him? And and the point I'm trying to make in a sort of semi-jokey way is a very serious point, that that our approach to secrecy, as the report recognises, is absolutely embedded in the way in which the political class and Margaret can explain all of this uh, 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 the political class think about the system aided and abetted uh, by the civil service. Last point from me there's a very interesting example in the report about um, uh, accounting officer directions for feasibility Uh, and there is a suggestion that we should have um, a better worked out system for ensuring that accounting officers can get directions about this, that, and the other thing. These accounting officer directions for feasibility were introduced in 2011. So far, there's been only one. Only one. Uh, And you might think this is because every project, every programme, every policy introduced since 2011 is going so swimmingly uh, that no accounting officer saw the need for a direction. But I think it might have a different dimension to it. It might be that accounting officers are quite nervous. This is the theme of Margaret's, with which I have some sympathy. They're quite nervous about directions. They think it might not necessarily be career-enhancing to get them. Anyway, the accounting officer who got a direction is still with us. (laughs) And it's Jonathan. Uh, And my point here is, again, a serious one. (coughs) What we have to ask is, what are the incentives in the system? What are the incentives in the system that will open it up and give officials the confidence to be more transparent about problems that they face and how they might be mitigated to make sure that truth is being spoken unto power. Thank you.
0: I thanks. Um, some really interesting reflections on evidence, transparency, how we get those incentives right, and also some of the gaps um, around politics and policy. Jonathan, um, I wanted to come to you now. Thank
3: you. Um, 17 years ago, uh, Islington had more primary school places than primary school children by quite a significant degree. So it came upon the responsibility of the council to decide which primary school to close, a not uncontroversial decision. Uh, And the reason I know about that is that I was director of education at Islington at the time, and so it was my job to advise the education committee on the range of options open to it. And so I prepared the work, and then I published it. Um, because that's what you do or did anyway in local government and then I went along to meeting the education committee to be quizzed by the councillors of the different political parties on the pros and cons of the different options and I was watched by the public, those who cared and there were quite a few, uh, on the matter. Uh, In the end the councillors agreed to close the school that I'd recommended, the Angel Primary School and so I went along to the school uh, to explain to the parents and the pupils and the teachers and the other staff why I'd recommended closing their school. Uh, Not a comfortable meeting. Um, That's why I guess I still remember it 17 (coughs) years later. And of course I wasn't on my own. I was with the chair of the education committee because in the end it was his decision. I was simply offering advice. But it didn't strike me as an odd thing at the time uh, that I was being held to account for the quality of my advice by the people who were paying my wages. And um, that's just the way it was. Uh, And I certainly did feel extremely accountable for the quality of my advice. Um, th- today, I'm the Permanent Secretary of Department of Education. I've been in a, a little under three years. And uh, Robert Halford, who's the chair of the Education Select Committee, he's not invited me yet uh, to appear in front of him. And I haven't asked him why, um, but my guess is that he thinks it might be a bit boring. Uh, because if he were to ask me what I think... That's not the way the system works. What I do is exp- What I would do is explain to him what government policy is. And moreover, he could ask me, and I would tell him. But, you know, I guess he might ask... You can see why he might prefer to ask ministers. After all, it's their policy. So what I mean is, about 40 minutes ago, I got an email which explains to me the government policy on this report. I mean, it's... it's, 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 it's um, <laughs> I mean, it's early, early, early days. Wait. Early days. The government is proud of its commitment to continuing to strengthen accounting mechanisms, accountability mechanisms, including through the recent introduction of accounting officer system statements. Um, You see what I mean? Uh, The... um, the, the, the committee where it, there's a, they have invited me quite a few times is the committee that Margaret used to chair and Meg Hillier now chairs. And that's sort of halfway between the two. Um, it is, I mean, I look forward to um, appearing in front of the Public Accounts Committee because you're more likely to have an interesting conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, not always. Um, from my point of view, not really when the committee struggles to distinguish between what a politician has decided and what a civil servant has advised, you know, which is not surprising, since we largely keep it a secret. But sometimes you do get into an interesting conversation about, essentially, you know, whether I could have done my job better, which is a good thing to be asked, isn't it? And to be challenged on, isn't it? Um, and so sometimes you know, it's obviously uncomfortable to be in that situation, but uh, being open to a debate uh, with Parliament about whether I could have done my job better is obviously good. A good thing, isn't it? Um, and then, even in circumstances where I am sort of defending government policy, because it's stretched into the government policy space, it can still be interesting. So, I was doing my best a few months ago to explain government policy on um, what are called related party transactions. This is the business by which schools spend money with related parties, or what might be known more generally as relatives. Um, uh, Yeah, you can see why we call them related parties. And uh, I, you know, explained government policy for some time. And eventually I said, I'll tell you what, I'll take that one away. Have a bit of a think about it. Uh, 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 Pretty recently, actually, the government announced how significantly it was tightening tightening up its policy on related party transactions. Obviously, I'm not a liberty... Uh, to explain the process by which such a decision was made. Um, Anyway, it was an interesting discussion. Um, So, uh, from my point of view, um, I haven't had a chance to absorb this report properly yet at all. But you can see uh, that I've always found it myself, um, you know, a good thing rather than a bad thing, uh, to be held to account for the work that I do. Often uncomfortable, but you know, always a good thing. Um, Though, of course, given what I've said to you before, anything this afternoon that I've said that is not consistent with government policy, I was only joking. (laughs) Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much, Jonathan.
4: Margaret. That was brilliant. Um, uh, and uh, I, I think said it, everything you had said. Now, can I first of all apologize for my voice? Um, uh, which I hope will hold. And secondly, I apologise that I've got to leave uh, early, but I've got to try and get some... In today's world, I've got to go and try and get lots and lots of money out of somebody uh, at a very boring lunch, which I hope will happen. But uh, the third thing to say is it's a fantastic report, so well done to uh, both Benoit and Julian for putting it together. And an incredibly distinguished audience, so I really do regret that I'm leaving early, and I hope somebody's taking a note... Of, of, of things that people are saying now I think because what I, uh, my feeling with the report is I think this should be the start of a conversation, not the final answer to what is a really contentious set of issues that um, I think uh, uh, it, you know people have very very settled and different views on on what they're doing. I think there's some interesting ideas in the report. I do think it's interesting having risk assessment and mitigation strategies for new policies, although um, as Richard said, I don't know why the civil servants don't use their letter of direction powers more often than they currently do, because that might be a much simpler way within the current framework of actually showing where there are concerns about uh, a new policy being implemented, and I would continue to urge them to do that. I think new, uh, better and more transparent information about CSR proposals is a good idea, uh, so that we can see whether what is fake news and what is real news, perhaps. And I think the idea of local public accounts committees looking at how... Uh, services governed from, from the centre delivered locally um, is also a good idea. So they good ideas. But um, I would be more radical. So I'm just going to throw out a couple of radical things. And I'll just start by saying to Richard, I know we're good here, but we are jolly, jolly, jolly complacent. I have been going around talking to uh, uh, jurisdictions outside the UK. And, you know, pe- this is a challenge. The challenge of accountability is one that they're all facing. But I don't find the sort of complacency that I find so often here in the UK. And my five years at the the, the helm with the Public Accounts Committee, Taught me two well, two or three things came out of it. There is unconscionable waste in public expenditure, and when you're trying to do more for less, it is simply immoral not to try and look at ways of strengthening our accountability so that we can get more effective and efficient delivery of public services. And we endlessly came across uh, uh, in, uh, cases of, the, of where that was the case. And the other thing to say is we, you know, we always say. We're governed by the rule of law, and it's you know, therefore, we're we're above we're above criticism. Actually, two areas where we found great concern, and it's not one tackled, which I think we've got to think about in the report. Over half of public services are now delivered by third-party contractors, private contractors, and holding them to account, and they don't always. They do tell quite a lot of fibs uh they don 't always tell the truth, holding them to account is a whole new set of challenges um to which we have to uh, get, uh, we have to entertain and all the work we did around tax and who pays tax and whether we 're all treated um equally and fairly. Uh, by the tax authorities, led us inevitably to question honestly more often than once whether or not actually those high standards of probity exist in that in that very, very important part of the world. Because if we don't get the money in, we won't have the resources to spend on the public services that we all want want to have. And so I just also would urge us not to be complacent about our standards. Don't necessarily compare us with the most recently emerging democracy but don't pretend that we don't have our problems Um, so that's the first thing the second thing is the rest of the world in britain is now much more accountable than central government is and we had that brilliant um, exposé by Jonathan of what he did 17 years ago. Isn't that scary? 17 years ago as a, as a, as a leading officer in one local authority. And that hasn't brought the world to halt that con- uh, uh, level of accountability. It hasn't taken the politics out of decision-making there. But what it probably has done is two things, which is why I'm a strong advocate of, of greater accountability. It, it, it's, first of all, made sure that uh, uh, there is a more democratic process. Secondly, the fact that it is in the open brings other people into the decision-making. So it isn't, again, going to my tax example, it isn't just tax professionals talking about it, a very closed group, but it's a much wider, wider body of people who are engaged in the issue. And that, I think, that transparency, that greater... Uh, 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 involvement uh, 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 of other people, uh, of other, greater participation of other people, I think brings to more sustainable decision making at the end. Um, that's a, so, so. Don't think we're the most. You know, we we've got to catch up in central government with the rest of the world, as local government is doing. Actually, increasingly, as private sector companies doing. And the third thing to say is the system is struggling to cope. And um, I, pro- those who've heard me before, but my classic. Uh, of that is neither ministers blame officials and officials blame ministers and we're probably all to blame but if we carry on in a world where we simply blame each other we'll never progress and actually get more effective more democratically accountable and more efficient services so whether you talk about the Brodie Clark affair where uh, Theresa May chose to blame Brodie Clark for what happened at, um, uh, with the visas, with the entrance at um, Heathrow Airport, and he was never able to give his side of the story in public, or whether you blame Charles Clark who had to um, give up being Home Secretary on the back of something he thought was being implemented by of, uh, officials and wasn't when he was um, in the Home Office. The system is just struggling to cope. So my three, three things. I think we should go for transparency big time. And that means that much of what is now considered private, i.e. the discussion around policy formulation, ought to be much more visible to the public. I don't see... I accept it's not the absolute answer. I accept that more will happen that is not written down. I accept there will be more challenges arising out of it. I don't put it forward as a sort of silver bullet, but I think it's just a healthier way forward. If you could hear from Jonathan, for example, why on earth he hasn't strengthened the uh, accountability for academies in the way that they spend public money i just like to know where that debate is taking place and therefore how we could improve the system so i would t- i would take it and it wouldn't take the politics out of decision the second thing is i would challenge and reform the code of ministerial responsibility i just think it's a broke system and we need to think through that again and i know it hellishly hard and I know there is no easy answer, but if we don't actually all sit round, all the brains in this room, all the experience in this room, all the knowledge in this room, sit round and really think through how can we actually make that more accountable and how can we get um, through Parliament and the public more involved in our decision and the third thing I do and I'm sorry that the only other politician in the room unless I'm Dominic has left is this whole issue about civil service account, um, reform which you talk about um, it's not good enough having a Minister for Civil Service Reform. We've actually experienced that in the, in the coalition government. I, there, I think there is an appetite among, across the political parties for political consensus here. I don't think this is a, uh, I don't think this is a politically contentious <laughs> issue. We all want better government. And so I think you need to sort of embed that consensus, you know, really formalise it, and then take the whole issue of civil service reform, on which we all have lots of ideas and of which accountability is a key component, take that and have a long-term sustainable program which doesn't change every time the permanent secretary changes, the cabinet secretary changes, the, the office the, uh, the the permanent secretary changes, or the government changes. So I think those three things, even greater transparency than you suggest, changing. Uh, accountability structures really uh, with the the code of ministerial accountability and a shared really journey around civil service reform would be where i would go
0: thank you very much margaret Before we open um, questions up to the audience, I had a few of my own, and I first wanted to pick up on a point that you made, Margaret, about the increasing role of contractors and others, and I suppose you know really a point about the complexity of modern government, on whether in the context of that complexity, it's possible to have meaningful accountability. So taking the rail um, timetable crisis this summer that Benoit has already mentioned, it involved the operators, network rail, the department itself, each playing its own role in making changes, really complex changes, at the same time. So what does accountability look like when you have so many different players making decisions? Perhaps who wants to start? Margaret, I might come to you first,
4: given that... uh, I mean, let 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 me give you a very local example. I was on one of my worst housing estates last Friday. And ironically, I mean, I wouldn't have bought a flat on there, but a lot of right to buy had been exercised and then converted into buy to let. And we had some terrible problems about rubbish and antisocial behaviour. I had five agents, estate agents there, who were all responsible for um, uh, running some of the flats on this estate, plus the Tenants' Association, plus the outsourced uh, repair button thing of the council. It was an absolute pandemonium. The fragmentation is something we live with mm-hmm. at all levels. How do you deal with it? Well, I think I would. Uh, there, there are two things, you know, on, on the privatisation. I, I think it's quite. That was an easier one on the on the private. I would make them directly accountable to Parliament. I think it's outrageous. Jonathan, that you haven't been called, by the way, to your education select committee because they have a duty; they really and should take it seriously of monitoring where existing programmes how they are operated, as well as dreaming up new ideas for the future. So I would make much greater direct accountability. I would open the accounts of those private um, private uh, contractors to the extent that they are public. Servant, the extent to which their contracts are the public service. I'd open them to FOI and I'd also um, uh, enable the NAO to monitor them both uh, for probity and for value for money so that you're really taking a number of steps which would enable you to open that up to public account. But I think all the bosses of those organisations, I don't think they'd be hostile to it, should come and be directly accountable uh, um, to uh to Parliament and then so don't make one minister accountable you know the minister is sort of at the peak of it all you've just got to actually I'm afraid in the fragmented complex world have more frag- uh, have more <coughs> complex structures of accountability I think that's probably where as far as I'd go but it's hard
3: Thank you Jonathan I might bring you in now. I, I don't have a uh, s- uh, simple answer I mean I, in my experience I guess building on what Margaret said is that most interesting complicated problems involve quite a few different players they just do, don't they? And it is what it is. Um, uh, and actually, to be honest, one of the frustrations I sometimes feel sitting in front of the Public Accounts Committee is what seems to me to be a sort of assumption that, and to be fair, you know, it, it's how we write the job description ourselves as well, I suppose, that there is a nice sort of simple line of sight. You know, but life's complicated and messy, isn't it? Um, and if you're delivering a service <laughs> to a third party, then that is, uh, that's true. And the extent to which we can write contracts which align incentives um, a- and make people feel part of a team, that's the task, isn't it? Um, that's what, uh, I see Nick Sharman who was with me in Islington 20 years ago. That's what we were trying to do then. Uh, but you can't just write it down in a contract. You have to get people feeling a sense of shared purpose, don't you? And it's hard. Oh.
5: Richard.
2: I suspect you probably could untangle uh, all the players in the um, timetable case and discover mm-hmm. who was responsible for what and who considered and thought about the mitigation of the risk in mm-hmm. a responsible way. Um, and so I don't think that is necessarily an impossible problem. Obviously, the problem is they're all going to be trying to cover their tracks um, but th- that doesn't mean you couldn't try and do it. On, on um, uh, private sector contractors, I agree with Margaret that, that um, what you have to have is, is reasonable transparency about the nature of the contracts and the performance expected in relation to the contracts and ways of auditing whether that performance is or is not being achieved. I would only say for, from having recently uh, until recently been involved with a, um, quite a big private sector contractor to government the thing that most terrified the chief executive was the idea of having to appear before the Public Accounts Committee in front of Margaret Hodge. And this is both a good thing and a bad thing. Um, I personally thought, you know, that he was wrong about appearing in front of the Public Accounts Committee in front of Margaret Hodge. That wouldn't have worried me at all. And I explained that to him. I said, she's charming. But the... Uh, but... but um, <laughs> if you get her on a good day. But <coughs> what, what we have to... What we have to the, the only serious point I'm making is we have to convey... Uh, and I certainly think you can do this we have to give people confidence that they can go before parliamentary yeah. committees and yeah. not be scapegoated and beaten up uh, and you have to underpin the basis on which the conversation is had uh, which Margaret often did of course um, but by facts, 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 facts evidence, evidence, evidence uh, which has been produced in a, in a structured and a proper way and, the, and, and then my view was well wh- how could you possibly not account for yourself so I think that there's a lot of cloaking behind sort of commercial inconfidence and all this sort of stuff that should be
1: uncloaked
0: well.
1: so I think there's been a recognition of the past few decades really that the the pure doctrine of minister responsibility doesn't really work. The minister can't be held to account for everything that happens. And there's been good progress, I think, in recent years if you think about senior responsible owners, the civil servants being called to account for implementation of projects before Parliament. And that's the sort of stuff we wanted to build on in the report. So we have this idea of getting better information on crisis earlier that you can then escalate to committees so that before you know, crises explode on the minister's desk and then you have to find a culprit, etc. you can find ways to resolve the situation. We also have... So we have a number of recommendations on parliamentary scrutiny. We suggest many ways in the report to create this information throughout the system, to map these risks and to bring them to the attention of decision-makers in Parliament. And then... So that's the way we've tackled this sort of issue, which is otherwise fairly intractable.
0: Thank you very much. Right. I'm aware that time's getting on, so I'm going to open up to the audience now. I'm going to take questions in threes. If you could just um, say your name and where you're from. Uh, so I'll stop at the front here. Thanks.
5: Hi. Uh, Sue Street, a former um, senior civil servant, and congratulations to the panel. Really excellent contributions. Um, I, I agree with Jonathan about being accountable for the advice that you give on specific issues. Um, as a young civil servant, I was sent to explain with the minister to a residence association why we were putting a sex offender hostel in that area. And I never forgot it, because you felt the kind of raw emotion and the difficulties of what you're doing for the public on their money. But I want to um, put in a word for secrecy and mm-hmm. lack of transparency between officials and ministers. The late Tessa Jowell and I worked together for five years. We had some fierce disagreements about some important matters. So if you are renewing the BBC charter in the post-Lord Hutton report climate with with the Director-General resigning, with um, you know, the, the government of the day very anti-BBC, um, it's an issue. If you are putting more money into Wembley Stadium, if you're selling the dome, and of course if you're bidding for the Olympics, there are accounting officer issues. Um, and there are political drives and there are lots of things going on. We did it all behind closed doors. We didn't write it down because of FOI, and we sorted it out. We didn't make all the right decisions, but we either didn't make the right decisions together or we did make the right decisions together. And I do pay tribute to Tessa, with whom, as I said, I had many disagreements, because she took this principle that you never blame civil servants in public because they can't defend themselves. And I think we don't have that trust between civil servants and ministers, which involves a private space to disagree, you won't get over the issues that Margaret correctly draws attention to, and which I think it behoves us all to remedy. Thank you. And then directly behind.
6: Oh, Vernon um, <laughs> Bogdan King's Cottage, London. Um, it's a very fascinating report, and I, I take the centre of it to be that there's a parliamentary role in ensuring efficiency in the public services and, in particular, civil service efficiency by using the forensic methods of select committees. Now, to the extent you say that civil servants are accountable to Parliament, there's a conflict, is there not, between their accountability, or at least attention, with their accountability to ministers. And um, the argument of the report, I understand you should <coughs> expose advice more and make it more transparent... On the model of the accounting officer, but that, as Sue Street implied, <coughs> accounting matters are technocratic matters which we all agree about. But other matters, say waste of money—I mean, I think HS2 is a waste of money—but there are lots of arguments on the other side. Isn't It's a political question, and uh, on, on which perhaps advice should not be exposed. <coughs> and I think it leads to two problems. The first is that um, uh, s- civil servants, in practice, as Sue said, will be blamed by select committees. So there'll be a a wedge between the minister and the civil servant. But when things go right, will civil servants get the praise or will ministers say it's uh, due to our policy? let's say waiting lists in hosp- for hospitals go down, will the minister then say, you mustn't give me the credit for it? It's <coughs> entirely civil service is doing. And so if you're thinking of voting Conservative or Labour because of this, you shouldn't do so to civil servant. Of course they won't. But when, there's bl- when something goes wrong, the civil servant will be blamed. Now, that won't be good for civil service morale if they're accountable only when something goes wrong and not when things go right. And secondly, the more you answer the question that Jonathan Slater posed, what do you think as a civil servant, the more you put a pressure on their neutrality because it's known that civil, service, civil servant A thinks HS2 is a good idea, civil servant B thinks it isn't a good idea, and that makes them less uh, acceptable to ministers of a different political persuasion.
0: Thank you. And then one more over there at the back. Thank you. Um, Abigail Watson, Oxford Research Group. Um, We examine changes in military engagement, so I'm specifically interested in how you think um, changes and the rise in the fear of litigation, especially with the extraterritorial application of human rights and things like Operation Northmore and the investigations into special forces, how that will will present challenges for um, this, this culture of getting around the fear of decrease in the secrecy brilliant thank you so you've got three there one on the importance of secrecy if you like um, one on will the civil service get the praise for things when go right and pressure on neutrality and then the third on the kind of uh, fear of litigation
4: Margaret I'm going to have to go after this so real apologies and, and um, I mean I just don't agree I'm afraid with either both very very good friends of mine Vernon and Sue and, uh, 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 and let me just say to Sue Let me tell you something we're picking up now, which is the stadium, okay? The stadium, which is costing an absolute arm and a leg. Total, massive, massive cost to the public purse because of a decision taken in an early stage that we wanted to end up with an athletics facility rather than building a football stadium. Totally wrong decision. Now, if that decision had been open, I don't think... I don't think you'd take the politics out of it. I think you could still decide the politics of going for HS2 or not. But if you had had openness... On the on, on on and I have absolutely. I, you've never told me, Sue. So, so I don't. You're not. It's not revealing. I bet you. You gave advice saying it would be more sensible to 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 build this as a football stadium at the early stages. Um, if if you'd had that open discussion, we'd have ended up with a more sustainable and uh, 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 sustainable outcome. And it's not just projects. It's not just that. It's whether the privatisation of the probation service or whether it uh, uh, whether actually it's the work program which was an early one which was totally ideologically not whether it's you so many examples, whether it's the aircraft carrier, so I'm not trying to do sort of one, one uh, political party against the other. I just think you can have those, have those discussions <coughs> in open and you come to stay. And I know there is this issue that civil servants will then get blamed. And I know there was this sort of thing that if you came to the PAC, you'd get a bollocking, you know, if something went wrong. All I can say to you is we've got to work on that culture. I don't think we ever did that. When, when actually the first, I'm going to get this wrong, you was it the East Coast or the West Coast, the, the first time it was the East Coast line contract that went west wrong, wasn't it? West, east or West? West or west.
6: west. Don't
2: worry, they're both <laughs> it, doesn't
4: it doesn't matter. But when the perm set came and sort of said, listen, I got this completely wrong. It was a total, we, we did all these things wrong. We then had a very good conversation Whether they learnt the lessons is another issue. But we did have at least a very good positive conversation about um, what went wrong and how we could put structures in place for it not to happen again. I think the only time people got a bollocking (coughs) is when they refuse to give us the information and they refuse to actually or close an experiment in an early enough stage when you'd learnt the lessons of what had gone wrong. So there is a a thing about blame and praise. Uh, And we've got to work at that. I like to think that... You know, we're all grown up enough to have to, to be able to distinguish between honest mistakes and, and then uh, things that, you know, could have been predicted. And then the final thing is who gets the blame and the praise? I was a minister for years and years. i have probably a bolshie minister, and, you know, some of the civil servants here will say that. But I did always feel... i did say it
2: when
4: you've left. I, 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 did <laughs> al- I did always feel that it worked best where we worked in a team. And I think, you know, where you can have... The working together, I don't, didn't see it as, uh, as you know my me praising. I felt where I had good civil servants who would often challenge me, and then we produced something which worked well. It was because of a team approach. So I think if we need to build that partnership and that team approach between ministers and and, and civil servants, not it's therefore not a blame um, attitude. And I'm really sorry to go, but otherwise I'm not going to get all this money out of these very rich people. <laughs>
0: Margaret, thank you very oh, much,
1: sorry. Benoit. Right, um, I'm acutely aware that much of what I started with in terms of knowledge of British politics was imparted to me by Van Bogdano, so I have to be very careful what I say. Um, so, in terms of secrecy, etc., I think. What we've started with in the report is um, major projects, because policies is a slightly different beast, also because the timelines are very different, etc. So, we're, again, this is a conversation. This will probably progress in the next few years, but start with projects, and then uh, I think we would say that, that so you shouldn't have. Discussions going offline and then no trace of, of anything, but rather it's a chance to have a more mature discussion. If you have this data, if you have this information, to involve the PAC to be able to say, Well, you know, have you considered these risks? Have you, how are you managing them, etc.? Um, so I think we would argue it's yeah more, more mature discussion. On the role of Parliament select committees, I think there is, as Professor Botono said, an unhealthy focus. On the minister, but at the same time, it opened the very important point about the role of rewards. And in the system as it is, there aren't many rewards for doing a good job. It's simply not the incentives on the system to highlight that. So perhaps something to be looked at there. My two thoughts.
2: Thank you. Richard? Um, well,
1: I think going to the,
2: the, the model, the deal model essentially is <coughs> going back to what Vernon was saying is <coughs> the minister takes the credit when any, anything goes right, regardless. And the minister takes the blame when something goes wrong. And I've worked with a number of ministers who understood that that was, that was the name of the game and were comfortable with it. And uh, Tessa is, an e- is a good example of this uh, because she's such an unusually decent person. Uh, and underpinning that is also the risk for the minister who operates on the other system, which is I take the credit and when it goes wrong they'll take the blame, is, funnily enough, they, the civil service, for better or worse, don't like that sort of system. Uh, and, and so the secrecy, the secrecy underpinning the deal tends to break down, and we could all think of examples of that, where as ministers have blamed officials for things that quite clearly were not officials' fault, funnily enough, stuff has come into the public domain that sort of casts doubt on that. So I personally think if we could stick with that system, that is a system which is very, very good for a system of democracy based around ministers where the civil servants are politically impartial civil servants. Whether you can sustain that, I don't know. Um, but I would personally go for that. On the point about HS2, you see, what I think is interesting about something like HS2 is obviously it is a hi- now a highly politically contested uh, project. And it might be it's just about something very grandiose and and not a useful um, use of money. But there are ways of objectively analysing the dimensions of that project and bringing them out in public on a basis on which they can be challenged, which I think is what a lot of this report is about. And all of those things have got to be good things. They've got to be good things. Now, what I think is an interesting question is... um, This has been around for such a long time. In 1977... The Civil Service was instructed to split off the advice and the background information, and the background information would be published. The Civil Service, as far as I know, ignored that instruction. Um, But I have always felt that there was greater scope to protect the private advice, because if you don't protect it, it will just cease to be on paper, while expanding the understanding on the basis of which the policies are being taken forward or the projects are being taken forward and making that publicly available. It's can you shift that dimension rather than wrapping it all up as its advice and because the civil service is politically impartial, something I'm passionate about, therefore it cannot be disclosed. So I think it's a shifting thing rather than a fundamental thing. I don't, think we, I don't think we're in a position to deal with the third point, which is, about, which is a very interesting question about the impact of human rights and international law on public servants, in particular in relation to the, uh, to the military. But, of course, what we do have to recognise is um, there are plenty of conventions and laws which the British government has signed up to that absolutely govern the behaviour of the British military. And they must be held to account for whether they did or did not live up to them, and as someone who spent a lot of his life working in the Ministry of Defence, it was very clear to everyone concerned that that was the system under which we would all be held to account.
3: Yes, I mean, the reason I mentioned the local government example is because I was politically impartial when when I worked there, and it's just quite interesting that uh, that it's different, and not discussed as much as it might be, it seemed to me. Um, clearly there's a difference. Uh, here I work for the minister, there I work for the council. But I was impartial. I love working for politicians, which is not surprising since I've worked for them for 35 years. Uh, and I've worked for Labour and Conservative and Liberal Democrats and coalitions and so on. And um, when I, uh, and, and, and so I think you know, building on Richard's sort of shifting point. Um, so when I was seeking my direction on the T-levels business, how quickly, essentially... Uh, was it reasonable to expect us to implement this new f- form of uh, post-16 education? I-, I-, I was certainly not suggesting for a moment uh, that it would be my role to say whether I think T levels are a good thing or a bad thing. That is, you know, that's the sort of political question. To what to- extent one wants to prioritise technical education of a particular sort. That is a political choice. Uh, the, question f- the question in my direction was uh, essentially a, qu- a question about how risky it was to implement it by a particular date. Um, And, um, I mean, to be honest, that's the advice I want from my officials all the time. Mm -hmm. The the difference between me seeking direction and them offering advice and value for money and feasibility and regularity is simply that I'm the one who gets to seek the direction, not that their advice is supposed to be different. Uh, All of our advice, all of our work is supposed to be on the extent to which the thing is lawful. Uh, can be done, done as quickly as they would like it to be done, which is typically quicker than we want it to be done, obviously. And is good value for money. And that, th- th- these are sort of judgments that are not party political. And the debate we're having is essentially the extent to which, you know, I suppose a ministerial direction on feasibility every seven years uh, versus um, everything completely open, uh, open, uh, open to the public, you know, whether we might shift it along a bit. I guess that's the question, he says, again, in supporting <clears throat> government policy.
0: Um, okay, so we've got um, almost no time. they just tweeted. Left. <laughs> we've got almost no time left now, so I'm going to take two more questions, and I'd appreciate it if you could make them quick. Uh, so, at the back there, Greg. <coughs>
7: Uh, Nick um, Sharman, an ex-member of the um, uh, company that uh, Richard was talking about. And just to raise a point about this issue of contracting, because to me it is axiomatic that contractors should be in the frame for what they deliver. What they have to be, though, is with the commissioning uh, agent. In in, in other words, if you avoid the person who commissions, usually uh, uh, an officer that Jonathan was describing and a division is driven between the commissioners and the contractors, you get this blame culture. And I think they have to appear together, the person who delivers and the person who oversees the contract. And that has to be uh, the way that we deal with, with, with private contractors. The, the other point I wanted to raise, and particularly with Jonathan here, uh, I'm now a local councillor, and I can tell you the biggest gap in now is around uh, of accountability is now around the point that you were raising around education and health. And the the very inspiring meeting uh, that you went to 17 years ago can cannot be held, and it, I think it is a shocking uh, opening uh, for for uh, in the accountability of, of the system. And a similar problem we're working uh, in. Hackney with the health service on a joint uh, approach very laudable joint government approach. There is no (coughs) form of clear accountability for uh, the mixture of health and local government and that's where we want to go as a system we want to join up public health and local government to make better services we have a system that does not allow us to do that. My final point is that I'm also chair of the audit committee there and I think we've got a framework in local government which could be quickly adapted to the idea of a local accounts committee uh, in the the local audit committee and I've begun to run hearings in a similar way to the way Margaret uh, and I wanted to pay tribute to her inspiring me to do this uh, uh, as the public accounts committee bringing people in quizzing, talking so you have a machinery in local government that I think uh, could be picked up and used
0: Great thank you and then last great.
7: Thank you um, as the report underlines, and, and, and you've all touched on this, um,
2: having the appropriate data transparently and uh, an evidence base that everyone trusts, is, is, it goes to the heart of this.
6: Given that there are existing commitments within government's published data which are not being followed through, which the PAC repeatedly draws uh, attention to,
2: and indeed Institute for Government uh, is, 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 has been undertaking work to try and tease out from, from, from data the stuff that
6: government is committed to publishing anyway. What needs to be done to persuade government to follow through on, the, on, on those data issues?
0: Great, thank you. So we've got some comments on contracting and the machinery of local government, and then Greg's point on data. Um, Jonathan, I'm going to start with you and also consider these your closing comments.
3: Look, I've uh, sought to be uh, pretty open as a serving permanent secretary in the room. I think it's stretching it a bit to expect me to offer a view about the pros and cons of the Academy's programme. I operate, in answer to, the, your, the, to Vernon's question, in a political context, obviously, and it's my job to make that system work as well as, it, as, well as I can. It's not no reason for you not to ask the question, but a reason for me not to answer it, in a public forum, and that would be taking it a bit far, wouldn't it? So, sorry, I've got nothing particularly useful to say in that particular regard. I do agree, uh, of course, that um, uh, it's uh, that if, if a select committee is holding to us account for the quality of our contracts, uh, then you'd want me or my person in the room as well, because we're the one that led it. Uh, so, I obviously completely agree with you there. You?
4: Um,
2: well, I agree with the next points actually, um, and. One of the issues which I think does arise out of the report is whether um, it's all very sort of Whitehall, Westminster-focused, or whether, if one thought about it the other way around, whether some of the changes that government has made have actually made account- democratic accountability a lot more difficult. Um, and I think that's a very important question to have on the table.
6: Mm-hmm.
2: On, on the question about um, data and so on, I don't know what the answer to that is. Um, So in some ways, you've got bits of that system which are regulated. So in a very important way, you know, the quality of government statistics is regulated. The quality of government information is supposed to be regulated by the civil service, actually. If the civil service can regulate somebody, probably it can't. But, you know, it is to be underpinned by the civil service. Does the civil service realise, still that that's its job, is I think a very interesting question. But then how you get government, how you make government <coughs> offer up coherent explanations of things, which Ben absolutely in this report and his colleagues argue for, and I have every sympathy for, I don't know the answer to that. Um, it has to come, I think, from Parliament. You know, civil servants uh, can push for this, but against a minister, they can't take it any further because, thank goodness, ministers are in charge, not civil servants. Uh, It would have to come from pressure from Parliament, pressure from the media, pressure from the Institute for Government, all the people who can tug at and make people change their perception of what better government would look like, but I I don't have an answer to what I think is a very, very important point. A lot of government information is shoddy, a lot of government explanation is actually wildly implausible, if not wholly unhelpful. That is not the basis on which the system is supposed to work, but... In a political process, you've got to find levers to force people to improve.
3: Which, which by the way, of course, I've just been on the receiving end recently, haven't I? Uh, So the UK Statistical Authority wrote... Uh, wrote to my secretary of state, and of, and it was a yes, exactly. came up to me, and that's a that's, that's a, a good system. That's a good system which is working pretty well, isn't it? And when yeah. it, there's inevitably going to be, isn't there, uh, a challenge in which ministers are going to want to present the, the most compelling case they possibly can, and my task is to make sure that the what I'm giving them is properly evidence based. Uh, but because I work for them, somebody external is regulating that system, and that's a system that's working pretty well, isn't it?
1: Yeah. So on uh, outsourcing in markets, I mean there is that inherent tension between managing your market and then working in partnership with whoever you've selected. We will be doing more work on this at the institute in the next few months. We'll be looking at some of these questions on the the gaps in accountability. Uh, so what we've suggested is sort of local PAC, but it all comes back at the end to these incentives. So are people encouraged to work together? Are uh, the sort of the way the funding streams work, etc. Do that? Does that encourage this? So we hope we hope this is one way. To hopefully, you know, have these conversations, help people do that. Again, this is a bit of a journey. To, to borrow wording from other people, and something that will need to be explored further. Um, and the final thing on data. I mean, there's probably no simple answer. We've recently published something on this. We need to probably keep pushing and show. Um, government that you know, this is useful at the end of the day it helps the civil service maintain sort of high standards of integrity for the data it publishes and ultimately could help ministers deliver better projects and it might be a bit more painful if you involve people who will criticise what you're doing but ultimately beneficial so that's what I would say
0: Thank you very much, right, um, we're over time so I'm going to have to draw it to a close there thank you to our excellent panel for a fascinating and very lively at times discussion and thank you to you all for coming along Thanks